Hello to all you lovely listeners and welcome back to season four of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges. That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives. It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. I am delighted to introduce you to Amanda Prowse. Um, Amanda is an international best-selling author. She's written 27 novels, two non-fiction books and nine short stories. She's sold millions of copies of books and is a trusted radio and TV personality. And I am delighted to have you on our podcast. Is there a particular challenge that you have faced or are facing that you can tell us about? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And I think the truth is it was a case of which challenge to pick. I think this (laughs) (laughs) at the moment, there feels like so many. I think something I've always particularly struggled with And I think in part because I didn't start writing until I was in my 40s, is that I have this terrible compulsion to compare myself to every other writer, every other woman my age, every other person. And I never fare well in those comparisons. It's like my, my inner monologue is my worst enemy. So that you have what I call a shitty committee, which kind of compares your insides with other people's outsides. And so you always fall short. Where do you think the source of that comes from? I think in part it's coming from, uh, I come from a very working class background where my dad worked in a factory, he worked in Fords at Dagenham's. My mum was a hairdresser and a stay-at-home mum. My granddad a docker all his life. My gran a stay-at-home hypochondriac. Stay-at-home hypochondriac, that's a full-time profession. She was marvellous at it, Julia, honestly. She had everything. In fact... Later in her life, I once introduced her to a friend of mine who was a medic and uh, they were sitting next to each other. And she said, you know, I've had everything removed from inside me. And he said, everything? (laughs) She said, literally, there's nothing left. And he said, you are are a modern miracle. It was just, yeah. Um, yeah. That's hilarious. Because these people were my guides, my inspiration, my parents, it felt very difficult and very much going against the grain when I thought, well, what I want to do is not work in a shoe shop. I want to write a book. You know, what do I have to write about? You know, I've never been abroad. We don't have carpet on the stairs in the hallway. You know, how can I write a book? It was something for other people, people who knew stuff I didn't, people who weren't like me, I think. Can I pause you a moment? Because I think what's really interesting is how class is still a real influence in society and in our culture, and yet it's not talked about very much. But part of what you're saying about coming from, and you say very working class as opposed to working class, is if it's, yes, it's kind of like one, like one ratchet lower than working class, which I haven't really explored with anyone, that there are beliefs and properties of being working class that exclude you from moving into other professions. Like if you're working class, you can't move into writing or being in a library because that means you have to be educated, quotes, or middle class. Were those things ever verbalised or assumptions that you made? Where did that come from? How you've described it is exactly right. 
but I always felt that people who had a different accent to me, who spoke differently to me, must know things I don't. I thought people who had had a decent education must be so much smarter than me. And I remember at school, ambition amongst staff and pupils was very low. You know, if you managed to get to 13 without being a glue sniffer or pregnant, then you were actually winning. And oh the bar God. was very low. I mean, honestly, it was, that is but, so but you... low. That is like <laughs> not glue sniffing and not pregnant at 13. It's like literally like on the ground. It's probably a slight exaggeration. But for me, I just never felt that I knew how to get out of the blocks. And I had a head full of ideas. I'd always been an avid reader. Our house was the place everyone went to. It was chaotic. It was busy. It was noisy. It was full of love. And actually, I should just say... That's big. Yeah, I should, I should also just add, I had the most incredible, fantastic, loved childhood. I wouldn't have changed a thing. But it did, I feel, give me a message that I needed to stay in my lane. And it comes from m- many areas of, of life. It was social... It was uh, school. And I can remember meeting people once I was sort of socialising outside of school going, um, you know, I worked in Camden Market from when I was 13. And I remember meeting people and they'd say, oh, I I want to work in TV. And I'd say, how on earth do you do that? And they'd say, well, you know, my mum works in TV. Or, oh, I want to be an airline pilot. Well, my, my dad flies. So if you don't know these people, if you don't have access to this inner circle, this special club, this network, what do you do? You know, how does a girl like me get out of the blocks? How do I fulfill all the potential I think I have inside me that no one is letting me tap into or even recognising? It was very frustrating. I think what I understand from you, which might be useful for all of us to kind of think about, is that if we have ideas of creativity of who we can be or how we want to be or what we can do as a child in our formative years... You know, we're born to be relational. And if those aren't acknowledged even, let alone affirmed or encouraged or allowed, somehow they feel wrong inside. So that the energy that's in you from a very early age tips in a direction of like, this isn't quite all right. And that in some way has formed the environment of your shitty committee that somehow everything isn't quite right. Does that make sense? It does. And and I can remember hearing words like um, lofty ambition, as though it was something not quite achievable. Um, That makes my skin crawl. It's so pompous. One thing I think shaped me particularly, I can remember, we all had those moments, don't we, in our childhood that that stay in your head. And I Mm. go to quite regularly, more regularly than I want to. Um, I was seven. Books were my educators, my friends, my haven. In this chaotic environment I lived, I used to be able to curl into the corner of a sofa on the floor and just get lost in a book. And Mm. it was an absolute revelation. Because when I say I got lost in the book, I was on the back of Black Beauty. I was riding across those fields. I was climbing trees on Follyfoot Farm. And then when I was 14, yeah. I was walking hand in hand, you know, in the Thornbirds with the Cleary yeah. family. I, I actually put myself in their shoes. So it was true and totally. Books become our friends and companions, don't they? They absolutely become part of us. They always have. And I was about seven, I think. And my teacher, whose name was Mrs. Blight, that is her real name. I always say she looked a bit like Aunt Spiker from James and the Giant Peach, but I think that's being a bit unfair. But in my mind, that's how she looked. And we had yeah. to go around and say what we wanted to do when we left school. Um, I mean, goodness knows. I was seven. I didn't want to, what I do now. I'm 55. I still don't know. You know, I mean, goodness. But <laughs> everyone stood up and some people wanted to drive black cabs. Other people wanted to play for West Ham or Spurs. And then they had a fight. Um, and I think I said... I, I wanted to write a book and it was the first time I'd actually voiced it out loud. And Mrs. Blight, and I remember it so clearly, Julia, she took her glasses off and she sort of laughed into the back of her hand and she said, Oh God. Well, I, I hope you have a plan B. <gasps> I felt so small. Mrs. Blight. I felt oh so my small. Oh God. I felt so stupid. I was so embarrassed. And I thought, goodness. I can see it in your face now. It's like it's still in you, humiliating you and squashing you to get back in your effing basket. And I remember that. I remember that feeling just rising up from my stomach, thinking, she's right. Of course she's right. You know, there was a girl in my class and she'd been to Mallorca, 
she had one of those little purses with Palmer written on it that she used to wear around her neck. And I used to long for that purse because it meant travel. I'd have given my grandma hypochondria and all for just a sniff (laughs) of that purse, Julia. (laughs) But I thought, I thought, yeah, she's right. What have I done? so awful. You know, we don't even have a spare bedroom. We we don't have carpet. We have never travelled. I felt less than in every way. And it was like a dagger that stuck in my chest and it's still lodged there on a lot of days. Given that the dagger is still in you, what enabled you then to start writing at 40? What was the capacity that you found given that you had this incredibly negative response your whole childhood? You know, when you have one thing that you know you can do better than most people. We all have one thing. So for my nan, it was making apple pies. It was knitting. For my mum, it's her exceptional ability to connect with everybody she meets and touches. Amazing. Everybody has one thing, don't they? One thing that they know deep down that they can do better than most. And I always thought, you know, every book I read, I'd either think, I wish I'd written that, or I can do better than that. And I don't want to sound... You know, no, that's great. But I had that knowledge in my gut. And I wasn't talking about writing award winning weighty tombs. I was talking about writing the kind of books that I want to read great escapist stories with a largely feminine angle that help us deal with real life issues. You know, all the shit we're all going through, whether it's debt, mm. addiction, weight struggles, divorce, grief, all that stuff. And I knew I could do it. Some gut was still alive in you, some internal creativity from that very young child hadn't been deadened there was still something that was alive and a force in you yeah and I think I'd always felt that but it was sort of like I kept a lid on it I kept it squashed in my stomach and I didn't tell anyone and I did every awful job you can think of and some good ones too but you know I've cleaned offices in the city of a night I've worked in call centers bars pubs you name it I did it rubbish at everything hated every job I ever had and used to think to myself well, it's okay, because one day I'm going to write that book. And it was like my mental escape hatch, my go-to place for happy and calm when, when life felt a bit rough. I got sick when I was in my 40s. And um, it made me realise this is my one time round the block. It's a wake-up call. It really was. And it was like, do you know what? What have I always wanted to do? And what I'd always wanted to do was write that book. So I did. Um, And in a way, it was freeing and it was wonderful. But also it was quite petrifying because I'd been saying for so long to myself, I can do this, I can do this. And suddenly it was like, actually, can I do it? And am I going to have to show someone? It was just a really Mm. scary thing. I, I didn't think in a million years that my career would take off as it has. You can't think about it. I just thought, you know, if I could make someone feel reading one of my stories the way I felt reading Maeve Binchy, Catherine Cookson, Colleen McCulloch, all the people I love, then that would be a really amazing thing. I kind of figured that uh, not ever having a go, not ever exercising this need that I had inside me, this compulsion to put words on paper, failure was probably the lesser you know, of two evils. Not trying would probably be the worst thing if I'd never had a go. It's a good lesson, isn't it? Not doing something is we tend to regret more than trying something and it not working. And I found it incredibly easy. I'm not a tortured artiste. You know, I don't sit for days chewing the end of a pencil and wondering what that sentence should look like. I write very quickly. I write very naturally. I think I've written over 35 novels now. As you say, I've sold millions of books in you know dozens of countries. And that's wonderful. And I look at all those numbers and I think, gosh, isn't that great? You know, I've got a house with carpet now, Juliet. Hooray. Mm. But I still... Every time I open that laptop, every time I I sit to write, I feel like someone's going to say, "Okay, enough. This isn't really your life. You know, get out. (laughs) I kind of expect it. Kind of imposter syndrome. I wonder what it would take to give yourself permission to be who you find yourself to be rather than have this ghost of a person that that isn't you anymore. I mean, that isn't you. That seven-year-old is no longer you. No. I try to tell myself that I have a right to be here, that people love my books and I, I have the most incredible, privileged, lucky life because, you know, I get to sit in my PJs and tip-tap away, creating this art that I love and other people seem mm. to love it. And in truth, if people didn't buy another book, I would still do it because I love doing it so much. I try to look at all that and remind myself of how much I've achieved. As you say, I wrote my first book 10 years ago, so 
it's it's a great achievement. Incredible how much you've written in 10 years. I mean, hundreds of thousands of words. The book I was most, well, not most interested in, but the one that sticks out to me is The Boy Between about Josh, your son, being on the brink of suicide and how he came back again. And can you talk about that? And also how the writing influenced you or or helped you? Writing certainly helped me and helped Josh too. The Boy Between is probably the thing I'm proudest of most. And it's a book that we wrote together with him and I uh, taking turns to write a chapter. And then the following chapter is almost a reply, if you will. It was really cathartic for both of us. But for me, it was another salient reminder that just when you think life is good, just when you have spare bedrooms, a swimming pool, money in the bank, a beautiful collection of books, it's all I'd ever dreamed of beyond my wildest dreams. Josh unravelled and I would have given every cent, every inch of everything I've achieved, every all of it, I would have given everything back in a heartbeat, Julia, just to give him one night of peace because there's that phrase, isn't there? You're only as happy as your happiest child. Goodness me, it's so true. And when that child would prefer not to be on the planet for reasons that you cannot begin to understand because he's wonderful. He has all the gifts. He's kind He's loyal, he's funny, he's smart. He's a really lovely citizen of the planet. I'm so proud of him. Mm. I feel chilled at the terror in both of you, in him in not wanting to live and you. I mean, I genuinely don't think there's anything more painful than seeing your child suffering. I think it just is so devastating as a parent. And And then I sort of flip between the idea that it's my job to fix him, so what do I need to do? Where's the doctor, the retreat, the tablet, the lotion, the therapy? And of course, there isn't one. There's lots of things you can do to mitigate his distress on a daily basis. And I have to say, he's doing really, really well right now. So I'm touching wood and my head and throwing salt over every possible shoulder. Yeah, Um, yeah. But it's, and then also I feel, you know, I, I can't fix him. This is Josh's journey and all I can do is actually support him. And it's that feeling of helplessness that's just the worst. And then there's this crazy thought that comes to me at three in the morning that I've grown up with the phrase, you know, no one has all the gifts. You know, is the universe saying to me, well, yes, you can have this success. You can have this material wealth. You can have this achievement. And this is the price you pay. It it almost feels like a a levelling. and It's like a punishment. Yeah, because it is the thing that is the worst for me. You know, Josh is, is my person and... I'm sure, you know, everyone listening will understand you have that person who is your, your gauge in life and your measure of success. And the fact that he is unhappy, well, it it pale, everything else pales into significance. His experience is increasing in all young people. You know, the rates of depression, anxiety and suicidal ideation are increasing every six months at the moment. So for people who are listening, who may have a young person who's in as bad a way as Josh, what would you say to them? What helped you? What helped him? And what was the worst bit too? I think knowing both is helpful. For me, I found any communication with Josh almost impossible. He didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to ask certain questions. I certainly didn't want to use certain words. Because in my head, I thought if I say the word suicide, it might give him the idea to do it. If I mention the word depression, is that a hook he's going to hang this maybe blip or bleak moment on? It was almost like we were speaking two foreign languages to each other. There was no real communication. I would say of a morning, how are you, Josh, today? And he'd go, mom, fine. Back to bed, leading this horizontal life. Didn't wash, didn't eat, didn't talk. I've learned that when depression, particularly with suicidal depression, comes to live in your house, it doesn't live neatly in a drawer. It's between every brick. It's under the carpet. It's in the cupboards. It's on your shoulder when you look in the mirror. There is no escape from it. It almost cloaks the house in darkness, which is why we called the book, you know, Story of a World Gone Grey, because it was like all the colour and all the light was blocked from our family, from our daily lives. It's very much how it felt. I found the most difficult thing was broaching the topic. I now know, of course, that with someone like Josh, by the time I've thought that he might be a suicide risk, he's already thought about that many, many times. I was catching Mm. up. I also understand that sometimes when people have depression, 
they don't have the words. They're not thinking straight. They can't talk eloquently in the way that I can, you know, give me your feelings of happiness on a scale of one to 10. They're literally trying to keep their head up off the pillow. Mm. Even those questions felt like too much. So it was about learning each other's language. The best bit of advice I can give to anyone is find the language that works for you. Sometimes it's just holding hands. Sometimes it's just laying next to them, sitting with them. Sometimes, like for Josh and I, it was writing to each other. So I composed an email saying, I'm really out of ideas. I'm extremely worried and I don't know what to do next. And Josh replied with, when I'm feeling low, which he was most days, come into my room, open a window, bring me a cup of tea, maybe turn the pillow over. And my reply was, oh, what? Like you were ill. And Josh's reply was, oh, I am ill, mum. And I think that was, the, that was the first time I understood that my son wasn't lazy. He wasn't difficult. He wasn't going through a teenage phase. My son had a mental illness. And yeah. just like when I was physically ill, people were bringing me casseroles and writing me notes and being so wonderfully supportive. It felt great. But it's the exact opposite when the illness is mental. People almost avoided him, avoided me, avoided the topic. I know because I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And so we had to find our language. And that's how we did it, through writing. And make the invisible visible in some way. I mean, I can see the pain is still in you so strong. And it's like, it's kind of embodied in you, the, the memory of the power of what you didn't know and then what painfully you came to learn. But you did find writing him that email opened the door for him to be able to say to you, I am ill. Yeah. I need your kindness. I need your love. I need a hug. I need a cup of tea and respond to him. Because I think the, the fear about, A, it's invisible mental illness. But as you say, we're so frightened of it that we don't do anything. And in some ways, that probably or can be one of the worst things we can do is doing nothing. Absolutely. And I'm ashamed to say, and this is something I will always be ashamed of, I used to get very angry and very frustrated and think, bloody hell, he's in bed again. He's asleep again. He's laying down. He hasn't emptied the bin. He hasn't had a shower. He hasn't taken the dog for a walk. He forgot to lock the door. I mean, good Lord, you know, when Josh is stood there with tablets in his hand, I couldn't give a shit whether he slept for a week, took the dog out, Mm. opened a window. It's just about keeping Mm. him here, you know? And I can't bear the fact that I was angry with him. He says in the book, he puts it so well. He says that feeling when people say over and over again, why don't you just go for a little walk? Why don't you get some fresh air? Because that's what makes them feel better. They get that. And he says, it's like my arm is broken and you're telling me to pick up a box. And I'm saying, I can't. My arm is broken. And they say, well, what about just a little box? He says, I can't. My arm is, my bones are shattered. I can't pick up anything. Well, why don't you try flexing your fingers? Why don't you try, you know, they're not listening. They're not hearing that he's broken, that he cannot physically do those things. And it made him feel even more isolated when he was at his worst. Yeah. I just want to take a quick ad break for my wonderful sponsor, Bamford. Bamford is a lifestyle and well-being brand dedicated to nourishing and nurturing your body and mind. It is also committed to doing things in a mindful way, conscious of its impact on nature and the planet. The change in season might be affecting your sleep patterns. So for anyone having disturbed sleep, Bamford's Be Silent treatment would be perfect for this time of year. Japanese shiatsu rocking techniques, a soothing foot bath and assisted stretches to help release tight muscles are all designed to relax your body and prepare it for a restful night. Bamford are inviting listeners of the podcast to experience their targeted holistic treatments at their wellness spas in London or the Cotswolds and are offering a brilliant 15% off all bookings until the end of the year. Book your treatment online at bamford.com and use the code THERAPYWORKS at checkout on all spa bookings. 
Also, if you're keen to learn more about the Club by Bamford, a new luxury private members club in the Cotswolds that provides a 360 degrees wellness experience incorporating health, fitness and holistic well-being, please visit bamfordclub.com. A big thank you to Bamford for supporting Therapy Works. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. September is a time associated with transition. For some, it signals the end of summer holidays and the return to regular routines, while for others it represents new beginnings and a renewed sense of purpose. While some of you might embrace this, many might become overwhelmed with all the new pressures you've put on yourself. So if you're one of those people struggling to fall asleep, or your brain won't stop worrying, it turns out that one great way to stop these racing thoughts is to talk them through. And there's no better place than therapy to do just that. Talking to a therapist will help you get out of your negative thought cycles, give your brain a break, and allow you to find some mental peace. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, it's definitely worth giving better help a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get a break from your thoughts with better help. Visit betterhelp.com slash therapyworks today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash therapyworks. So how did he manage to find his way back to living or wanting to live or being alive? I wish I could say he took this drug. He went for that walk and he was sprinting around the paddock like a new pony. Ongoing journey, daily, daily. It's slow. It took time. It was up to Josh to find. He, he described it as being in the middle of a maze. And it didn't matter how many of us were calling from the outside that he could do it, that there was a path out. He needed to find it. And I think, realistically, it took five or six years for him to get from his lowest point to where we are now. Good friends a great girlfriend, a supportive family, but mainly giving him permission to absolutely give in to his disease. Saying to him, if you need to have a horizontal life and lay under a duvet and not go to work and not shower, then that's okay. And it's strange because I remember being really overwhelmed when I was a single mum with Josh and I was really tired and I was doing shitty jobs. I remember going to my mum's on a Sunday and she'd sometimes say, why don't you go and have a nap for an hour? And I'd give her the baby and I'd go upstairs and I'd get in her bed and put my head on that pillow. And I remember that feeling, Julia, of just like, oh, I've got this safety, this yeah. hour. And, and I realised that that's what we needed to do for Josh. We needed to create that nest, that environment. And I know that's not always possible because life is demanding. But we needed to, as far as we could, create that environment to allow him to just be and find his way out of that maze without judgment, without anger, without pressure, without a clock. And that's exactly what we did. And just going back to the second part of your question was the, the worst point, really. And that was when the day Josh tried to take his life and my husband yeah. brought him home from university, um, I had no idea. I, I, would, I would have said prior to that, I was, you know, the mums you meet in the supermarket, I was smug mum. I knew their friends. They texted me when they got home. We went on holiday together. We ate together regularly. They knew to wear a vest when it's chilly. Job done. Tick, tick, tick. I've read the book on good mumming, winning, acing at it. So when Josh was completely unravelling, it was such a shock to me. But also, I just thought, well, I've failed. I've failed in this what this most important yeah. job. I've failed. But at least we've got him home. The worst is over. He didn't die. He's here. I didn't realise that that wasn't the worst. The worst was yet to come. That was just a low day. What came next? The bleak, interminable, unfathomable, not even sadness, but numbness that Josh felt in this impenetrable shell that I couldn't crack and I didn't know the code to open it. That was the worst. That helplessness and powerlessness, the questioning of what did I do wrong? But also it sounds like you were kind of thrown into this alien planet that you had no map you had no tools 
And the one thing that you wanted most in the world was for him to have life in his life, to be living. You couldn't influence or you could support him, but you couldn't make it happen as his mum. I'd say it's even worse than that, Julia. And, and again, this is to my great shame. I didn't believe depression really existed because I'd never seen it. I'd never felt it. I'd never had it. I'd never lived with it. So I heard people say, I have depression. And I'd say, oh, you know, well, I often get low days. Low days. I've often, I've often, exactly. I've often been a bit fed up. I mean, I was in my forties, you know, I wasn't a child, but I'd never seen it, experienced it, touched it, felt it, lived with it. And suddenly there it was in my house. Boy, oh boy, do I get it now. But I was learning from that very first interaction. And that makes me feel rubbish. I should have known more. I should have done more work. I should have been better. Because I feel if I had, we may have been able to help clear the path ahead for Josh quicker, rather than me being one of those people who's saying, why don't you just pick up a box? And of course, you can never know. And you were saying it pervades the whole house. And so how is it affected your other kids, you and your husband, you as a whole family, because it transmits, it's utterly contagious, isn't it, depression? It really is. And my other son, Ben, was kind of almost left to his own devices because it was like we were bailing, bailing in a sinking ship and Ben's on the shore. So Ben's okay. We don't have to worry about Ben. This needs all our focus, which of course is entirely untrue. Ben was watching us bailing that ship. He's fearful for his brother. He's worried for his parents. He's helpless. And worse than that, all our focus is on Josh because this is the crisis Mm. right now. He's the one we need to to hose down with the fire extinguisher. Well, Ben's fine. He's not on fire. Ben was just burning more slowly. He is a remarkable young man. I'm extremely proud of both of them because they've both, in their way, had to fight battles because of this illness that came to live in our home. And we've spoken about it since. And, you know, we're doing all the right things to help keep everyone informed and communication open. And there is nothing now that we don't talk about, which is a really positive thing. I will now say to Josh, do you think today you might try to take your life? Wow. And he says, no, no, I'm fine today. I've learned that that's the conversation I need to have with him so that then I can get on with my day. He can get on with his. Everything's fine. Between my husband and I, he was... um, quite remarkable. He's an army officer and he had had a lot of experience of particularly young men who were struggling with their mental health, which I hadn't. And he knew that what Josh needed when I was running around trying to make chicken soup and find a cure was to lay on the floor and hold Josh's hand through the night. He knew to do that. He knew to just hold him like he was a baby. He knew Mm. to read to him. He knew to sit with him. And he was quite remarkable. So tender. He really is. But I actually, and this makes me sound like a horror, I was quite jealous because my job Mm. was to fix Josh. I was the one who'd given birth to him. I'm the one who's supposed to know him inside out. How come this man could come in and do this when I didn't know what Mm. to do? And I felt quite Mm. envious because I wanted to be his saviour. And of course, now we're out the other side. I am just so extremely thankful. For, for my husband, for, for Ben, for Josh, for the family we've got, that we've survived. But it was like we, we lived on the edge of an abyss and you knew that any moment the floor was going to fall away and it was exhausting, absolutely exhausting. I'm amazed that, that Simeon and I survived. We're very strong friends, first and foremost. He's my great mate. I love him, um, but he's my great friend, first and foremost, as well as my husband. And I think that's what made the difference, uh, that friendship and that kindness, showing each other kindness. You know, there were days when it was fraught, terrible, difficult, arguing, all the stuff that you'd expect. Yeah, your capacity to manage who's put the bins out is literally not there. You're constantly on the edge. So you're shouting or terrified. Also, it's very difficult to really deeply connect when you're on the edge like that. You can't really feel love for others or love for yourself. You're in a kind of heightened state that blocks that capacity. So you feel quite lonely as well, everybody within the family. So lonely and and exhausted. And I think that was a really difficult combination to sort of navigate. But I would say in the last 18 months, I do feel like there's some light on the horizon. We're not at the, you know, cork popping moment just yet I don't think we'll ever get there I think it's important also that anyone else is going through this Josh now leads 
a great life with depression. He leads a good life. He's not waking up every day feeling suicidal. And I I was speaking to another writer, uh, Josie Lloyd, who's fantastic. And she said something. She said, everybody has all the weather in their head. Some days it's sunny. Some days it's foggy, cold, wintry, snowy. We have all the weather. And I said, you know, Joe, that is the most beautiful phrase. And and that's Mm. just our life, isn't it? And so I don't go into a state of panic if Josh is feeling a bit snowy, because I know that maybe this afternoon there might be sun. And the fact that his lows are low and his highs are higher, well, that's just Josh's life. But he does leave a good life, Julia. He really does. Oh, I'm so... Maybe it's relieved to hear that he is out of the worst and he's living with depression. And I think weather is a really good metaphor for our emotions, that we can't control them. We have to let them come through us and live with them. And they're unpredictable and uh, messy and chaotic and stormy. But when we allow them and find support for them, then we do manage to get through it. And it sounds like you do too. And I imagine, however devastated and in some ways traumatised you felt, you still wrote thousands of words every day whilst you were feeling this bad. Was that a supportive thing that you can do the thing that you can do and that gave you some sense of agency? It was everything. I mean, just like when I was a kid, I used to curl up with a book to escape an environment or to find peace. It's exactly now what I do with my writing. It's no different. I curl into the corner of a sofa. I sit and tap away and I write. And it's exactly the same. It's another world in which I can go into. And I'm very thankful for it. Do you write every day? Every day. Every day, all day. People say, do you never have a day off? And I think, it's not like it's a chore. You know, I'm not a nurse. I'm not a paramedic. I'm not out digging ditches, all the jobs that really count. You know, I'm sitting writing stories. You know, I'm very, very lucky to be doing it. One of the advice I do give to people is whatever you're going through, you don't have to write a bestseller. But if you just write a list, a note, a sentence, Mm. a thought, a word, an idea, it can really help focus your thoughts. It certainly was the case for me. Um, I think writing has been my salvation for the last 10 years, if I'm being honest. It's been my own kind of therapy, Julia. So you never sought therapy? I never have. I've always felt um, embarrassed because I think I've got so much going on. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Because I guess that's the whole point. And I also feel... Yes. What, you think you should be... It's like... It's like you have to be well to go to the doctor, for fuck's sake. What? Exactly right. I know. I'll only go to the dentist when my teeth are in tip-top condition, which is actually true because I hate the dentist. But um, I also feel, I suppose, very anxious that once I take the lid off, my goodness, what's going to come out? I feel there's so much going on that I don't know where to start. I have a system. I have filing cabinets in my head where I pop all my ideas, all my worries, all my concerns, all my experiences, good and bad. And I leave them there on shelves. Maybe one day I'll go and look in them, but I probably won't. Um, so I feel fearful of opening those drawers. Therapy scares me. It scares me. What you're saying is very, very common. Much more common than people who get therapy in that people are really terrified. If I open Pandora's box, I'm going to drown in what I've put there, whether it's an individual filing cabinet or it's just one great big <laughs> dustbin. You know, I I do really understand that. So how has it been talking to me? I mean, I'm very moved that you were willing to speak to a therapist, given that therapy scares you. Well, I've spoke to a friend of mine a few weeks ago that has regular therapy. And I said to her, I said, you have all this therapy. You know, what's wrong? And she said, nothing's wrong because I have therapy. And I thought, (laughs) okay, hang on a minute. So she's saying that because she does take the lid off and she does explore these things, it helps her her mental health stay sort of in check, which is no different to getting a regular physical MOT. You know, I kind of got it. So I thought, okay, so this is going to be interesting. I've loved talking to you. I found you incredibly calming. I actually forgot the purpose that we're recording, that this is going to be shared. It was just like, you're looking at me and I'm talking to you. So I've forgotten that there's other people going to be joining in this conversation. And that made it easy it made it great and I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I would talk to you happily all day every day Julia this has been lovely I've really enjoyed talking to you and I think you have this incredible insight which is your gift with words that a lot of people what is difficult is finding words to go internally and finding the words to describe for the external world what is going on 
and you do that so richly and beautifully. So I think in some ways your writing and finding your words is your therapy, as you said it is, but it is also a gift, right? So that has kept you sane. Thank you for saying that. That means the absolute world, honestly. I love that. And my life's very relatable because it's a mess. And so that's what I write about. And people who read my books, they know if I'm going through it, they're going through it. And we're kind of all in it together. And I think that's really the essence of it, isn't it? If you feel less alone because you're reading something or speaking to someone, then it just makes that day a little bit better. I mean, I do think connection is the absolute key. But your new book, All Good Things, sounds like it is the sort of next chapter after Josh, like it was this perfect family, which you were where you thought everything was fine. And then it really, really wasn't. Yeah, very much so. And uh, All Good Things is very much about what it's like to be constantly looking over that garden fence and thinking everyone really has it much better than you. Um, And it's the story of two families, really. And each chapter is given to one character who slowly reveal their true story, the story of that family. And of course, nothing's ever what we think it is behind closed doors. You know, everyone behind those closed doors is probably looking on the other side of the fence and thinking, oh my Mm. goodness, if only I had that life. Comparison for me was very valuable when I was growing up. I looked at women I wanted to be as strong as. I looked at people whose careers I thought, gosh, I'd love a career like that. I looked at people's kindness and thought, yes, I want to compare how I live my life. I want to be kinder. I learned by comparing myself. But actually, in later years, it was the opposite of self-kindness. It became um, comparison was a very negative thing. And we see all sides of that in the book, just learning how nothing's quite ever what it seems, Um, peeling away the onion layers on a family until we get to the true heart, which turns out we're all very similar, just all wrapped a bit differently, aren't we? I think that's a lovely way of saying it. There's much more that we share, that we all have this underbelly. We have this front that we show and... There's always stuff that we're dealing with. But if you were being your best self towards a character that is yourself, what would you say to her? Be open. Be open with yourself. Don't sit on your feelings. Tell people how you feel. Because when I open up to people like Josh at his time of crisis or other people, I find I get it back in return. And it's almost like you have to start that dialogue and you need to be brave. It takes a lot of confidence and it takes bravery to say things that you really feel and really think. I feel like I've probably self-edited and monitored most of the things I've said throughout my life in in every aspect, whether it's work, relationships, family, in my books, you sort of self-edit. But actually, that's not always the best route to take. Sometimes that extreme honesty wrapped in kindness can make the biggest difference because it's how you move forward. And I think moving forward is now, for me, everything. It's how we've moved forward through Josh's illness. It's how I've got physically better. It's how my career has grown. Otherwise, you're stagnant. And that's not good for anyone. I mean, I think that is unbelievably valuable insight in that it's what we do to hide and block what we most fear that holds us in amber. And that when you can find someone that you can be, I think the word nowadays is radically honest, it does release something, something changes. And that's what therapy is basically. When you find the words for what you most fear or you feel most ashamed of and you voice it and it is heard and you see the sky doesn't fall in, you see their response isn't ugh, how disgusting, but that they love you and that they then say their thing like, oh my God, I did much worse than that. Or I felt the same, or I get what you're saying. Then that frees you to liberate you to have another feeling, which helps move you forward in your way. It's not a stagnant pond anymore. It's a pond that is a river that's flowing and you're moving down the stream. I love that. Just how you've said that, that's really resonated with me because I think for the longest time I wasn't being honest with the kids but I expected them to be honest with me yeah gosh that makes me cry and that we model how we want our children to be we have to live it I had this idea you know Josh was a very hard one baby I couldn't conceive and then I had miscarriages and all sorts of infertility problems and I can remember the day I had him holding him in my arms thinking 
you are going to be the best doctor, lawyer, cowboy, sculptor, artist this world has ever seen. You are going to reach for the stars and I'm going to help you. And not once, not once in that time did I ever think I'm going to battle every day to stop you taking your life. So when that's the child I got, what a shocker. It wasn't what I thought, wasn't what I planned, wasn't what I asked for. But my goodness, would I swap Josh? No, not for not for anything. He's my entire heart. And partly I think of us understanding each other, particularly in the book, is understanding the kind of people we are and how we live and all our flaws. And Josh mm. has been very honest about mine too. Yeah. We had to rip the band-aid off and speak, as we've talked about, completely honestly. Otherwise, there was no point. But yeah, I remember thinking that. This isn't the child I wanted. You know, what is this about? I can really hear how much you love both him and Ben. And, mm-hmm. you know, love is hard to define, but it feels to me as a way of ending is that your mum really loved you and she loved you not just with feelings, but with actions, how she was with you, how she was every day, that love is action and it is strong medicine. And it feels like from your mum, even though you had one whole picture of what your child should or would or could be like, you love the child you have. And that has not been easy. But in loving him and letting him know that you love him in an active present way given how complex and difficult it's been that has been the thing that is the medicine that's helped you both absolutely that's exactly it love is our medicine thank you so much amanda prize i've really enjoyed our conversation thank you julia so much now listeners it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. I find my conversation with Amanda Prize so warm and insightful and I mean I could talk about me being a striver. I mean, she's written like 40 books in like 10 years or something. Um, I wonder what came up for you. So do you want to start? One of the things I thought about was how much we do not talk enough about class. Yes. We seem to be a very active conversation about race and ethnicity and about gender. And class is still such a massive factor in people's choices and opportunities and confidence in how they see themselves and how different people interact between different backgrounds. And um, I think we're less literate on class than we are in other areas, both as therapists and also just out in the everyday world. I don't know about you, but I still think it's quite a taboo thing uh, to talk about. And yet, as she described herself, how she saw herself, how she was seen, it meant that she took decades to do a career that clearly she was passionate about as from a child. No, I completely agree. And I also think that class has such a huge impact, just as you said, on opportunities and also like your internal sort of self-esteem or confidence. And yeah, I think it's harder to know somebody's class from just meeting them. Whereas gender is usually more obvious. Race is usually more obvious. Maybe you shouldn't ever make assumptions about anything about somebody and yet there's, mm, there's things that are usually more obvious that you do make assumptions about whether you should or you shouldn't. Whereas class is harder to sort of know where to begin, I think. Mm, people are more worried about getting it wrong. But I think that's partly because we're less literate. I think people are worried about getting it wrong on mm. all, all fronts, like pronouns, race. Mm. I think they're all can feel like a minefield. But I agree, there's less language around Mm. I remember um, when I was training at Metanoia, which was like 31 years ago or something, we did a physical exercise where one end was working class and the other end was posh. Mm. And we started with where we came, where, where we were born, the class of origin. 
And then the second exercise was where you felt you were. And I remember, like, I had to put myself up. See, that's a terrible word, but I put myself at the upper class. Is that the word? I don't even know. As you're saying, you didn't have to. I, I feel like excruciating ah. shame even saying it. And I felt I can remember in my body that experience of standing at that end, feeling very alone because I was the only person there, but also knowing that I was privileged, that I was lucky to have it. And I'm not saying it was a, I'm unlucky being privileged and being at that class, but they, I think every level of class has its emotional baggage, if you see what I mean. Mm. And I, I, I feel scared saying this, by but the way. But also a sense of wherever you're from, no one wants to be judged. So, mm. like, yeah. so you're kind of exposing yourself by sort of saying, like, this is me, this I'm from. And I think she obviously had such a visceral experience of that, of, being like where I'm from equals bad, can't not going to go anywhere, mm. be pregnant at 12. What did that teacher say to her? I hope you have a plan B. I, but this is something that I have done a lot of therapy on for myself because I have carried a lot of shame around having privilege. And I think some of my most productive therapy was with a male working class therapist uh, who I was just like, you know, tying myself in little knots, trying to talk about it. And it was just really, I felt the shame was debilitating in kind of being able to just talk about it and get it wrong. And the preconceptions that, that I assumed he had about me, which he did have, and the fears I had, it was so helpful for me because I felt so illegitimate in having any difficult feelings around it because of uh, the privilege that I had. But that meant that then I was icky around it in circumstances I didn't that I shouldn't have been in group therapy when I was in my training in potentially with clients where I just my own shame just meant that then I couldn't lean in to the moments of discomfort or when it surfaced or when I felt judged, which I often have in different circumstances and as I have other people and it's I think it was helpful in clarifying for me something about where you're born is nobody's fault. <laughs> The thing that is damaging is the system. It's the system that has these impacts on everybody on different backgrounds. And obviously there's much more benefit from being in a privileged position than in a not privileged position. And it impacts everybody. They were all part of this hierarchy of privilege and opportunity. And also within that, which I agree it is systemic, everyone wants to have a sense of belonging. Mm. And it's the barriers to belonging that also do us harm and all the judgments that go along with it, that stop us having a sense of belonging. But I think, like you said, so the fact that you had those conversations did the work. I just remember in my training, someone saying to me, your client can't go somewhere you haven't dared to go yourself. And if you haven't been able to be open to particular parts inside of yourself, then that will be replicated in the therapy room. And actually you're sort of like, denying somebody an opportunity to explore those things because you're not okay with it mm. so i think it's really important to do yeah agree. should we talk about josh and his suffering and depression yes i mean i think there was two separate things that i thought was obviously an incredibly moving and, and hard story to hear but i think i was really fascinated by her journey with josh and learning to really meet him where he is and how hard a thing it is to do to be with and meet somebody where they are. You know, I know I've said it quite a lot before, but I think it's so unbearable to see your child in pain that all you want to do is fix it and fix it and, and do all the things that people say, you know, like she said, go for walks, go outside, da 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 Get out of bed. And, and those are all good things to do. But sometimes somebody's not in a place where they can do them. And sometimes all you can do is be with somebody, keep them safe. That's it. And that's actually what they need yeah. in that moment is to just yeah. be with them. And it was such a beautiful description of how she realized that along with her partner, the help of her partner. It's both the literal and the metaphorical lying down beside him mm -hmm. that they described that her husband did of just meeting him, just mm -hmm. being there side by side. 
and so hard to do. And I was so interested how honest she was about being jealous of her partner, that he could do that. It was almost too unbearable for her to be able to do that, but she was able to kind of recognise the value of what he did. And how in families we do each have different vulnerabilities and different strengths. And that, you know, we can get into sibling rivalry if they're doing the right thing and I'm doing the wrong thing, but actually... Well, that's what I do because I'm always in sibling <laughs> No, but I think um, I think it happens a lot as as parents for sure. Mm. Where like you're kind of glad that they're doing it because it's not your thing, but at the same time you're like. Mm. She found her language through writing. It was a different channel, and it also just reminded me, in a more general sense, how powerful writing can be in terms of a journal. You know, some people find it really hard to talk their experience and find it much easier to write their experience. I've had clients certainly write things and then give them to me to read because they can't say them out of their mouths, but they want me to know them. Or uh, using the text box in Zoom calls, you know, because sometimes it's just like can't get it out through the throat. And it is a really valuable channel, isn't it, of communication for, for many people. I think writing, drawing, anything that gets what's inside out. Symbolized. It's a helpful tool. But I also resonated with yeah. like reading as an escape, knowing that you have somewhere to go. <laughs> I thought she did such a helpful visceral description of what it's like. And it reminded me of our family when we've had dark periods and dark times of that pervasiveness. And, you know, she talked about her other son as well and, and the impact on her. But it's into the DNA of the building, didn't yeah. she, she said. Yeah, and it reminded me how, I don't know if you both remember, but we actually repainted a room in, in the house that the colour was all associated for us with, like, not a very happy time. And it's, like, literally in the walls. And I remember when I was running eating disorder groups and we were talking about the sense of being in the dark night of the soul when you don't really know whether what is happening, if there's any movement, or you're just in the abyss of the terribleness. And someone talked about the Bible story of Jonah and the whale, where Jonah gets swallowed and is in the belly of the whale. And actually, at the end of the story, Jonah gets like spat out on the other side of the world. But all that time that you're in the belly of the whale, you have no idea if you're coming out, you have no idea if you're moving or if you're going anywhere. In all that chaos, it reminded me of that kind of sometimes those sort of story overlays can be helpful. That when you're in it, you can't imagine being anywhere else. You know, like we've talked before, your future is influenced where your mood and brain is in the present. So if you're in a dark place, you kind of picture that for your future. No one can tell you, like, this is going to end. Like, no one can say to you, like, this is definitely going to change. And it isn't over with her. Like, it isn't over for lots of people that depression is something that for some people you have to find a way of living with your entire life. Mm -hmm. We do have a narrative, I think, you get over depression, you take the meds, you, like you said at the beginning, Em, that we fix it. And actually, it's much more about finding ways of supporting yourself. And given that you ha have low moods or real depression, like he did, and finding ways of living with it. And I think the other thing is just the sort of increase in mental health crisis for young people, mm -hmm. um, particularly. And I think I read a Guardian article recently that said, urgent referrals are three times higher than in 2019 and that's more than like an increase in an awareness obviously that's you've got sort of covid in the middle there and it's like the sort of perfect storm that has created this crisis and i think lots of teenagers and young people missing really important developmental stages being at home being vulnerable all these different things parents noticing more because they're around their children more but I think it also has created this situation where it's so, so difficult for parents to get help because mm. like waiting lists are insane and therapy is expensive privately. And even then there's waiting lists. And so I also just wanted to say, like, if you are a parent who is trying to get help, but you're on a waiting list or whatever the situation is that you're not able to access individual therapy, then there is actually quite a lot online that can be really, really helpful. So there's a lot of different helpful advice and groups, and it sort of depends on what's going on with your child. But Young Minds is very good. The Child Mind Center, which is an American charity, have a lot of different information and recommendations. I think then there are diagnosis-specific ones, like ADHD. There's this great website called Attitude, <laughs> which is an ADHD Amazing. website. There's a lot of autism ones, trauma ones, 
and there's a lot of also community groups which can be really really helpful right. so they're not the same as therapy but they can be something that is better than nothing and groups can be so great whether it's peer-led or yeah. mm-hmm. therapy-led i think the power of groups is often underestimated i really feel like we could talk about this for such a long time it's so important Thank you both, and particularly thank you to Amanda Prowse for her incredible clarity and warmth and humour and honesty talking about such important and difficult things. Thank you all for listening, and do rate, subscribe and share the podcast with those around you, and come and listen next week. tell you about a podcast I love and honestly I wish I'd been around when my children were younger. The Motherkind podcast explores how to feel happier, more confident and empowered in your motherhood, even in this world of pressure, judgment and comparison. Host Zoe Blasky is the UK's leading motherhood coach and I love her kind, wise and empathetic approach to the challenges mothers face today. Every week, she speaks to an incredible expert, such as Gabor Maté, Dr. Julie Smith, and me, to share actionable steps and powerful lessons to living your life as a mother with more joy and unapologetic confidence. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Just search Mother Kind.